First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse nine, it says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Earlier in our worship, we sang a song. Some of you saw the words up there and some of you perhaps even said them. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. You know, that's part of the point that Paul is making in the Fourth chapter of First Thessalonians in chapter one and chapter two and chapter three, he has reminded us that Jesus Christ, the Lord, is coming back. And because Jesus is coming back, you should live lives of purity and you should live lives of maturity. Paul has been describing the walk that pleases God. The exhortation included a command. That we be pure in our sexual conduct, knowing that there's a relationship between purity and personal maturity. We're to cultivate holiness in our personal lives and harmony among ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ and honesty among the people who are living on the outside. Paul knew the desire of love is to give. And the desire of lust is to get. And so he moves from personal lust to personal love. And he will give us four practical ways that the believer can please God. Number one, we grow in love more and more. Number two, we study or we make it our ambition to be quiet. Number three, we mind our own business. Number four, we work with our own hands. Now, it's important that you understand something. We are citizens of two worlds. We live here on the planet Earth, but our home is in heaven. We are going to go to heaven. We are going to one day be the constant companions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, that's why the New Testament says we are in the world, but we're not of the world. We must remain distinct from yet attractive to the world. And because we are distinct from yet attractive to the world, we sometimes find ourselves living in a dramatic And contrasting difference with the people in the world. And this is why Christians, listen carefully, this is why Christians have an obligation and a responsibility to be hard on ourselves and to other Christians. This is why we're not to be hard on the unbeliever. 
One of the most difficult things it is for Christians to grasp, and it is a difficult concept. It is difficult, difficult, difficult. Your unbelieving mother, your unbelieving father, your unbelieving family, your unbelieving friends, it shouldn't shock you. It shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't annoy you that they act like unbelievers. Oh, but I am. I'm totally upset by it. Get over it. The thing that you need to be shocked and annoyed and disturbed about is your own behavior. It is okay for Christians to expect Christians to act like Christians. Let me ask you a question. What is the first thing that the world notices about you? What is the first thing that grabs the unbeliever's attention as they look at your life? Paul knows the world's first impression about you comes from the way you actually treat each other. Your unbelieving family, your unbelieving friends, the watching world looks at the way that you treat your wife and they look at the way that that you treat your husband. They look at the way that you treat your children and they ask themselves this question. Why? This person is just as bitter and rude towards his wife as I am towards mine. There's nothing that commends that kind of behavior. And because the first impression that the world gets about you is the way that you treat each other, Paul encourages you and admonishes you, make sure that you love each other. Make sure that you're kind to one another. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul is reminding the believers in Thessalonica to stay loving and keep working in light of the fact that Jesus is coming. Think about that for just a moment. Stay loving. Keep working. Because Jesus is coming. Stay loving and keep working because the world judges you and judges the Savior by all that you say and do. And so it begins in verse 9. He says, but concerning brotherly love, this draws attention to the fact that he's now changing the subject. He's switching gears from verses 1 through 8. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And by the way, the word translated brotherly love is, is not the usual word agape, which we've learned about which we've talked about, God's love. The word brotherly love or Philadelphia is found six times in the Greek New Testament in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, it's translated twice. The word was adopted by William Penn and his Quaker associates as the name of the new city which they founded. And remember, Philadelphia was founded as a haven of rest for persecuted people from Europe. By the way, Philadelphia was the first capital of the United States from 1781 to 1800. But remember, the first capital of the United States was founded for the purpose of Christians expressing kindness and support to one another. In the New Testament, the word always refers 
to the love that Christians are supposed to have for one another. When the word Philadelphia was used among the unbelievers, it was a word that they would use to describe familial relationships. It was the relationship of mothers and fathers to their children and children to their parents. It was the relationship of blood relatives. Blood relatives had a, had a responsibility to support one another and encourage one another and provide for one another. And so it came to mean, if you will, among Christians, the way we respond to one another. Now, think and clearly about this. Paul is making mention of the fact that you as a Christian have come into a right relationship with God through Christ. You've been born again. God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The person of Jesus indwells you. Because we have one father, we are one family. And because we have one father and we are one family, we have a responsibility to love each other. And Paul writes that he has no need to teach them. The amazing claim is that God, through his Holy Spirit, would do exactly that. Isn't that interesting? Because many Christians labor under the illusion that we are loving when we feel loved or when we feel affection towards a particular person or towards a particular group. One Christian writer puts it this way. He writes, and I quote, loving people is about the most difficult thing that some of us do. We can be patient with people and even just and charitable. But how are we supposed to conjure up in our hearts that warm, effervescent sentiment of goodwill, which the New Testament calls love? The way I would translate what the writer is saying is, would, how do you have that warm, fuzzy feeling inside of your heart? And what if you don't have that warm, fuzzy feeling inside of your heart? He writes, some people are miserably unlovable. That odorous person with a nasty cough who sat next to you in the train or light rail shoving his newspaper in your face. This shows you how old my quote is because people don't read newspapers on the train anymore. They just simply plug in their iPod and you just they just mind their own business. He writes those crude louts in the neighborhood with their yappy little dogs. That smooth liar who took you so completely last week. By what magic are you supposed to feel towards these people? Anything but revulsion, distrust, resentment, a justified desire to have nothing to do with them. Quote, now hold that thought. And think of that person who makes life miserable for you right now. Don't say his or her name. Just think about them. Think about that person in your mind right now and you go, Lord, you've placed this person in my life. And I not only am having a hard time loving them, I'm finding myself despising them. And I want you to remind yourself of something. The Bible's instructions are that we don't have to act on our feelings. The Bible's instruction is also that love and grace is a decision that we make when we draw on another person's strength. We draw on the reservoir of Christ's love, his strength. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
Paul is basically asking you not to get something that you don't already have, but rather to grow in something that you already possess. And so Paul's position is that that person exists in your life, not because you don't have enough love to give to him or to give to her, but God, for whatever reason, has placed that person in your life so that you will grow more and more. So that when you encounter that person, you'll be able to say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending. Go ahead. Insert their name right there. Thank you for sending them into my life, because clearly you have called me to grow more and more. And you've called me to grow more and more, both in personal purity and maturity. Because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. In verse 10, it says, and indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. Remember, Macedonia is that part of the, the Grecian peninsula that is to the north. And they've already gained a reputation of having a love. Look what Paul writes. That that you've already demonstrated it and that you increase more and more, he's encouraging a love without limits. Now, I want you to think this through for just a moment. Paul is encouraging a love without limits, a love for the undeserving, a love for those who have not met the conditions of what normally constitutes a loving relationship. Well, I'll love you when you respect me. I'll trust you when you trust me. I'll have respect and trust and affection for you when you have trust, respect, and affection for me. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not talking about a conditioned love based on their willingness to cooperate with your definition of love. Paul is encouraging a love without limits, a love for the undeserving. Does that mean that you don't tell the truth? Of course you tell the truth. Does that mean you don't warn people that they're going in the wrong direction? Of course, it doesn't mean you don't warn them that they're going in the wrong direction. But in order for brotherly love to increase more and more, God will place you in a circumstance where you have an opportunity to do just that. And so the next time that you pray for that person, you should be able to pray, Lord, make that person, ooh, I mean, make me love that person. Lord, you've placed them in my life so that I would grow. Because we do live in a world where we expect people to earn our love. This is why a taste of real Christian love is supposed to taste differently than the world. This is supposed to be the thing that convinces people of the gospel truth. Again, Paul isn't asking you to get something you don't have, but to grow in something that you already possess. It was Charles Dickens who said, have a heart that never hardens, a temper that never tires, and a touch that never hurts. Why is brotherly love so important? Is it to impress the unbeliever? Not necessarily. 
Although that's certainly a part of it. Jesus himself said they would know that you are Christians by the love that you have for one another. But the presence of love does something else. It creates an atmosphere of unity. And where there's an atmosphere of unity, it brings harmony. And where there's unity, there's harmony. And where there's harmony, there's blessing. And guess what? With unity and harmony and blessing... Now, all of a sudden, church becomes a wonderful place to be, not some sort of drama center. And so, if you're a Christian and if you're experiencing difficulty with someone right now, and that someone is someone that God has clearly called you to love, it's so that you'll grow more and more. And that you will grow in love more and more because Jesus is coming. And there's this ambition for peace. Look what it says in verse 11. It says. And that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. One translation says, and that you study to be quiet. Now, the word translated study is very, very small in the English language, but it's very, very long in the Greek language. It's a compound word and a compound word usually has a prefix, a root word and a suffix. And the word study here is philo, time, may I. It's it's a compound word and you already know what philos means. It means love. And time is a word that meant Honor. And so it carried with it the idea of an honor that lasts affectionately long. It literally came to mean ambitious. And so one Greek New Testament scholar suggests, quote, to make the pursuit of a thing your earnest endeavor. One Bible translator, Phillips, translates this passage. Make it your ambition to have no ambition. And you might think, what, what, what could that possibly mean? It sounds like some sort of Zen nonsense. Make your ambition to have no ambition. (laughs) The translation might work if we change it just slightly. And let me tell you what I think that it means. When he says, and that you study to be quiet, he's in effect saying, make your ambition to have no self-ambition. Now, that becomes a key concept because we do have an ambition. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Our ambition is to know and to love and to honor God. It's to magnify him in the majesty of the attributes of all that he is and all that he possess. In other words, the believer's ambition becomes Christ's ambition. And what is Christ's ambition? It's to glorify God. It's to do all that the Father asks. Jesus told us that this is to be our ambition. Remember, Jesus himself said, he who would be great among you, let him be. Go ahead, you can say it. Pretend like it's okay to talk. The servant of all. He who would be great among you, let him be the servant of all. So if your ambition isn't to fulfill your ambition, 
But if your ambition becomes to glorify God, remember what glorifying God means. It means to honor him in the sum and the substance of all that he is. One Bible teacher puts it this way. Seek strenuously to be still. Now, again, the command might seem odd at first glance. What are you saying, Paul? Lead a quiet life. And I think that part of the answer is found at the end of the chapter when Paul talks about the coming of Jesus. Remember, he's talked about the coming of Jesus in chapter one and he's talked about the coming of Jesus in chapter two and he's talked about the coming of Jesus in chapter three. And now he's going to really talk about the coming of Jesus in chapter four. But what has happened is I'm going to suggest to you that it would appear that some of the Thessalonian believers have caught rapture feature fever and hysteria has broken. Out. You got to understand something. In 999 AD, people believed that the turning of the calendar hearkened the end of the world and the coming of Jesus, and people sold their property and quit their jobs and they bought guns, gold, and groceries and they went to the highest place that they could to await the coming of Jesus. In 1844, it was repeated. By a man named Miller, who was a group who, along with a group of people, believed that, 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 that they had done an exacting calculation and that they determined that Jesus was for certain going to come back in October of 1844. So people sold their guns, gold and groceries and bought ascension robes and went to a high place in order to wait for Jesus to come. And then it happened again in 1973. And then it happened again in 1981. And then it happened again in 1988 when a guy named Edgar Wisenot, take the hint from his name, he wasn't wise. And he gave 88 reasons why Jesus was going to come in 88. And then he recalculated the coming of Christ to 1989. And make no mistake about it with the Mayan calendar and the history channel, you're going to have a whole new wave of apocalyptic fever that's going to rush in. Now, does this mean that Jesus isn't coming back? No, Jesus is going to come back. Could Jesus come back at any moment? I believe with all my heart that that's exactly what could happen. But Paul wants to channel that enthusiasm into quiet or what I'm going to suggest to you is normal Christian living. The instructions of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 13, was you occupy until I come. And so here Paul is saying, quit acting like freaks. You know, when you meet someone with their little aluminum foil helmet. And they tell you that Jesus is coming. This is not a good thing. In the decade that began 2000, I, I was at a, at a place. I had a friend who was speaking because there was mass hysteria that with the turning of the computer clocks, all life would shut down in America. Some of you are old enough to remember. Don't you understand that Y2K will become the most important and the most devastating thing that ever happened to us. I said, you mean more devastating than the Civil War when 50,000 people died in a single day at Antietam? Well, you mean more devastating than the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I go, you know what? 
you're a nutcase. You're a nut burger. And people would say, their death is on your hands. And I was thinking, haven't you read the scripture? This is what the Bible says. The Bible says, study to be quiet. Make your ambition to not have selfish ambition. Well, okay. Well, does this mean that Christians should get an education? Should Christians get married? Should they purchase homes? Should they start a business? Well, yeah. If you have a family to support. In 1973, I was a part of the rapture fever phenomenon. In 1973, I thought, I probably shouldn't go to college. I, I probably should stop all that I'm doing, and I should devote myself full time to telling people about the reality that Jesus is coming back. And my, my pastor, his name was Paul Smith. He was Chuck Smith's brother. And, and he gave me information that, I'll, that I thank him for to this day. He said, Gino, live your life like Jesus could come back today, but prepare your life like God is calling you to a lifetime of ministry. You pray and prepare to do that which God has called you to do. What is your ambition? It was James Baldwin who said, be careful what you set your heart upon, for it shall surely become yours. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What you care the most about invariably will become yours. What is your ambition? What is your passion? Is it your ambition to lead a quiet life? It was William Carey, the famous missionary, who said, Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. It's okay for you to attempt great things for God. It's okay for you to ask and answer this question. Lord, what is it that you want from me? What is it that you desire from me? How can I best serve you? Our ambition isn't to become someone famous or even do something famous. Our goal is to be what Christ has called us to be. And so at the end of verse 11, he says, to mind your own business. In the first service, a woman came up to me and she said, you know, that part where it says and mind your own business. Do you realize how hard that is for women? You know, you're laughing and I'm sitting there going, what am I supposed to say? What am I, am I supposed to go? Okay, you're exempt. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul knew it was hard. But I'm also going to suggest that just like there were men and women who were addicted to impurity at the beginning of this chapter... There were also men and women who were addicted to drama. I don't need to see a show of hands, but do any of you know anyone who's addicted to drama? And so, what does this mean? And do your own business. Let me give you a definition of what I think that it means. I think what Paul is saying is faithfully accomplish your assignments in life. I'm going to repeat it. Faithfully accomplish 
the assignments or the tasks that has been given to you. Are you a husband? Love your wife. Are you a wife? Respect your husband. Are you parents? Love your children and raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Are you children? Respect and obey your parents. Are you brothers and sisters in Christ? Understand the assignment that has been given to you and fulfill the assignment. If you're a student, be a great student. If you're working, do your job as unto the Lord. For example, at work, it might be easy to say, I'm so in love with Jesus that I want to spend all my time witnessing for him and you not do your job. I heard of a person who stayed up all night praying for her co-workers only to call in sick saying, well, you know, I've been praying all night. I've been praying for all of the people here at work. And I'm so tired now because I've spent the night praying that I'm unable to come into work. You know what? If I were that person's boss, I'd say you're fired. I'm not saying don't pray for people. And I'm certainly not saying be quote unquote spiritual. But guess what? You're to accomplish the assignment that's been given to you. You're supposed to do your job. We accomplish far more for Jesus by being dependable in our assignments and communicating the Lord with our attitude and talking about him when it's appropriate. Let me just help you with a New Year's resolution. Never miss the opportunity to make others happy, even if it means you have to leave them alone to do it. Do you laugh, but you understand exactly what I'm talking about. This is what it means about minding your own business. It's very, very important that we understand something. That sometimes that means leaving people alone. If a person says to you, leave me alone. Leave them alone. Pray for them. You see, your prayers can do far more to bring them to Christ than even you imagined. Will God use someone else? Possibly. It was Ann Landers who wrote, make somebody happy today. Mind your own business. But Ann Landers didn't make that up. She stole it from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm reminded of a somewhat different prayer. I've changed it a little bit. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. I'm the only one that I can ultimately be responsible for. I'm responsible for my heart. And I'm responsible for my mouth. And you're responsible for your heart. And you're responsible for your mouth. Do you ever imagine what kind of a world it would be if you simply minded your own business? You know, some people watch the news some people report the news, and some people make the news. Guess what? You're going to put lots and lots of people out of business if you just simply mind your own business. The true measure of a person isn't what he or she is willing to do for a person so that they can get something from that person. You know what the true measure of a person is? It's when you choose to do something generous 
and good on the basis not of what that person can give to you, but with the expectation that that person has no ability to reciprocate whatsoever. And so Paul says, love each other more and more because Jesus is coming. Mind your own business because Jesus is coming. And look what else he says at the end of verse 11. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now you have to understand something in Greek culture. One out of every three human beings in that culture was a slave. In Greek culture, only slaves and lower class citizens did manual labor. Hard labor was considered crude. It was considered personally degrading. The elite thought themselves that they were destined to rule, that they were destined to enjoy the arts, that they were destined to indulge in pleasure. And you've got to understand something. There was a group that began to congregate in the Thessalonian church who adopted a different attitude. And the attitude was, why should I work today if everything I know is going to be gone tomorrow? Some of you might have fallen into that same trap. If nothing matters and nothing is going to be here tomorrow, why not max out the credit cards and let the Antichrist pay the bill in the tribulation? See, you're laughing because you're going, wait, I I thought about that. I thought, wow, I still have $10,000 left on the card. I even heard of a cult leader, a local cult leader. Who maxed out his credit cards. And when the credit card companies approached him about paying the bill, he said, Jesus said that I don't have to pay my bills because there is no tomorrow. Click. No, see, you laugh, but I want you to think of the absurdity of that statement. Paul and his example among the Thessalonian believers was to work with his own hands. He made tents. The coming of Christ was never supposed to serve as an an incentive to be a cheat or a freeloader. And the problem became so severe that Paul would later have to admonish them again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And we're not talking about years. We're talking about months between the writing of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says... For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread, unquote. Let me paraphrase for you. Paul writes, get a job and stop sponging off people. Now, you might think, but that sounds so unchristian-like. No. Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. Now, you, you have to understand something. There clearly are times through accident or illness that people simply can't work. There are times in our lives where circumstances are such that we can't work Paul isn't talking about those circumstances. He's talking about the person who can work and refuses to work because they think that they found something better to do. But here's Paul's point. 
If you refuse to work when in fact you can work, you have forfeited the right to be heard in regards to the gospel. That's his point. In other words, for the person who says, hey, I've quit work so that I can devote myself to sharing the gospel. I need you to understand something. Paul never embraces that view. Paul works. He works daily. He works in order to provide for the bills that he's incurred. I need you to understand his position. A lazy, slothful, undisciplined, irresponsible person does not advance the gospel, but discredits the gospel. My granny, who is maybe the wisest person I've ever known, she would say, a lot of people want to carry the stool when there's a piano to be moved. She said that when I picked up the stool. Because she knew that there are people who try to go for the thing that weighs the least and creates the least discomfort. Those Christians who gave up their jobs to wait for the Lord became supported by those people who could least afford to support them. And so Paul encourages financial independence. There are good reasons to work, not least of which is to pay your bills. But it's also to pay the bills that you've incurred among the unbeliever. So it's to provide for your family. Clearly, it's to minister to those who are truly in need. But part of the testimony that Paul is giving is that it's equally as important for you to love each other. But it's also equally important that you sustain your testimony to the unbeliever who is watching on the outside when the unbeliever says, hey, wait a minute, you disrespect your wife. You don't pay your bills. You lie, cheat and steal. I'm at a loss to understand how you're any different from anyone else. It's hard work and hard work is the yeast that raises the dough. And so in verse 12. Paul writes that you may walk properly toward those who are on the outside. That he's talking about the unbeliever. So that you may lack nothing. Now, again, the expression walk properly means walk honestly. It means walk decently. I like the word dignified or to behave in a dignified fashion. But clearly what Paul is talking about is the outward presentation of a life to a watching world. Here's Paul's point. People are watching you. The unbeliever is watching you. Paul's emphasis is that your testimony be consistent with what's happened to you on the inside. The fanatics. The crazies who left their job and refused to pay their bill and ruined their testimony among the unsaved merchants was who Paul is addressing. We work to give to those in need, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.28. Paul's admonition, don't be overly dependent on others. Now, here's what we know. 
We know that there are certain times in our life where we are dependent on one another. We know that there are certain times in our life and we thank God that when a person has needed a hand out or when a person has needed a hand up, that you have been there to give them a hand up or you've been there to give them a hand out. Paul isn't talking about that. Paul is warning about those people who cultivate a lifestyle of perpetual dependence. And I'm going to tell you what a lifestyle of perpetual dependence is. You don't work. And you can. And you begin to depend on other people. And that's why Paul says that you may lack nothing. There's no premium for poverty. He says, so that you may lack nothing. Here's what he's saying. I want you to do these things so that you have everything that you need. And by the way, if you do these things, you will have everything that you need. You may not have everything that you want, but clearly you will have everything that you need. We work to provide for our family. We work to provide for the needy. We work to provide all that's needed. I cannot work my soul to save, for that my Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. We don't work to get saved. We're saved, and so we work. I think some of us need a little plastic surgery, and I'm not talking about the kind that alters your facial appearance. I'm talking about the elective surgery that comes when you pull those little plastic devils out of your pockets and purses, and you surgically decide to end their little terrorist life. Because that's what they are. They're terrorists. They're terrorizing you, and they're terrorizing your family. They're punishing you. And they're punishing your family. If ever, if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time, if ever there was a time to get out of debt, it's now. My advice, live with less. Pay your debt. Love each other more and more. Live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Because Jesus is coming. In Colossians it says, walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. That means the unbeliever. Redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other. Think about it. We're Christians. We look for Christ's literal, visible, personal, second coming. The text gives us a clue about the lifestyle of the obedient Christian. We live a holy life by abstaining from sexual sin. Purity leads to maturity. Maturity leads to harmony because we love each other. Holiness and harmony leads to honesty as we conduct ourselves among the unbeliever. We work with our hands. We provide for our families. We refuse to be busybodies. We concern ourselves with the things that are important and we neglect those things that are none of our business. And guess what? When an unbeliever sees you live a life of holiness and harmony and honesty, they'll hate you or they'll admire you. 
they'll hate you or they'll want what you have. Now, I want you to think this through. If they hate you, you're honoring God. If they want what you have, you're honoring God. You know, one of the deepest disappointing things that I ever hear is, if Christianity is so cool, if Christianity works, then why are Christians so unhappy? If Christianity is such a wonderful, drop-dead, knock-out, peaceful, contented kind of a thing, then why does the non-Christian live exact? Why does the Christian live exactly like the non-Christian? And my advice. They have a lot to say, because if you're a Christian and you're lying and if you're a Christian and you're cheating and if you're a Christian and you're stealing and if you're a Christian and you're acting outside of harmony and outside of honesty and outside of purity. Then you need to rethink who you are and what you're doing. So. Ordinary practice of pleasing God, give me. One pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. That I can grow in love more and more. That I can study to be quiet. That I will mind my own business. I want to work with my hands. If you do those things, guess what? The ordinary practice of pleasing God in the light of Jesus' coming is going to give you the mechanism whereby you will accomplish exactly what God wants you to accomplish. A vital testimony to the people who are watching outside. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray for one pure and holy passion. Lord, we do pray for one magnificent Obsession, Lord, we pray for one and glorious ambition for our life, and that's to know and to follow hard after you. And Lord, I pray for that person who's struggling, even at this very moment, to like, let alone love, that despicable person. But Lord, I know that it's your job to grow us and mature us. Lord, we want to live in harmony. Amongst ourselves and honesty among the people who are on the outside. We want to live that way because we know that Jesus is coming back. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand.